Amanda Clue, welcome back to the Eater Upsell. Thank you for having me back, Daniel. You're just back for the intro today. Uh, Amanda, uh, my co-host, is finally back from parental leave. Three of the worst months for me ever, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> yeah, for other reasons. <laughs> Un- completely unrelated. <laughs> but, um, you know, you are not in this episode today, but you are at the office, so you might as well join me for this intro. Sure. I wanted to tell you what I did. I Tell me what you did. What I did twice. Right. <laughs> Those you... of you who heard our food stories already know that Daniel recorded an interview with this expert and lost it. Or was it just never on? There was a, there was technical failures. Yeah. Um, but he was nice enough to allow me to come up, to, to schlep up to Yale's campus and to re-record him in his office. Very nice. This man's name is Paul Friedman. He wrote a book called 10 Restaurants That Changed America, and I read it and really loved it, so I wanted to have him on the show. And... Uh, Tell me what's the what's the book? Tell me about the book. So the book is all right. Well, here here's why I love the book. I I I love anything that is going to give me a history lesson about like a real lesson about American history, but that is uh, covered and decorated in something that I that I love that I'm already interested in. Mm, so through mm-hmm. these ten restaurants, they go from like late 1800s, I believe, uh, all the way up to the last one is Chez Panisse, I mm-hmm. think, which is still open today. Actually, a few of them are still open today, but Chez Panisse is still a functioning restaurant in the same version of what it was when it started. Uh, you learn so much about uh, the immigration history, about the way that um, the economics of food, how commissary kitchens were invented, the history of Chinese food in America, and the the class perceptions of these different kinds of food. Mm-hmm. And I just found it so much fun. And it is broken up into these 10 restaurants. You can this <laughs> so it's kind of a device to tell these much bigger stories. Yeah, but it uh, but it, the food information is mm-hmm. also really interesting. Right, and I just feel like it's something. I mean, around here we just talk so much about Chinese food. We talk so much about chain restaurants, and for me at least, I was missing basically everything that happened before the two thousands. Mm-hmm. I think as as an initial step to really taking food history seriously at a, as a category, I couldn't, I can't imagine a better, uh, a better first book. I love it. So I, I recommend the book and, um, I hope you enjoy, uh, Paul Friedman up at, uh, up in New Haven, Connecticut. So if you like the show, please remember to subscribe. Now that Amanda's back, we're going to bring a degree of professionalism to this oh, program yeah. that, uh, was absent for the last three months. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lots of new things. We've got maybe a rebrand coming. Can Ooh. we, yeah, a new logo. Ooh. Yeah, maybe a Twitter handle. Damn. Lots of things. So keep an eye on the Eater Upsell. This spring, coming at you. So Paul Freeman, thank you so much for joining me. You are a professor of medieval history at Yale. That's my day job. <laughs> what, is your, what is your night job? My, my night job is all the food stuff. So it's <laughs> not so much the oddness that I am interested in the history of food. If it was the food of the Middle Ages, it would just be an eccentric take on the job I was hired for. Mm -hmm. But my interest in food is primarily American food. And so that uh, gives me points for expanding my expertise and also makes me a kind of an odd character because people don't usually do this. People uh, have have later version, later jobs in life where they become chefs. Right, they follow their dream. So I wasn't (laughs) aware I had this as a dream. Chef is a logical dream. Uh, just like uh, maybe uh, saving lives or you know doing something that's uh, not profitable but satisfying. Right. I, I was very happy with my job. I still am a medievalist, 
but I kind of let my hobby get out of hand and actually started writing about food. Well, so that's interesting. Uh, we're going to talk about the 10 restaurants that changed in America, your book. I want to talk a little bit about medieval history first and how that uh, the study of that went into this. But for like, what do you consider academically? Like, what are you known for around these parts in terms of your uh, study of food? Are you a are you a food journalist? Are you a food historian? What what is your what would you consider yourself now? Food historian. Yeah. When you say these parts, do you mean Yale University? I mean, in the academic circles that you were more in used the to academic running. circles, I'm known as a medievalist within an admittedly restricted circle. And as a medievalist, I'm worked on the history of Catalonia the history of peasants. Mm -hmm. So I was once asked at a conference, what happened to you? Uh, because <laughs> I gave a paper on food in the Middle Ages. And I said that after studying the peasants for about 30 years, I decided to devote the rest of my career to rich people. But that's not really exactly the case. I was always interested in food as a marker of social distinction. What do rich people eat? What do poor people eat? And what do rich people imagine poor people eat? What are some stereotypes of character as supposedly revealed by what people eat? We're familiar in this country with a lot of racial stereotypes of what African-Americans eat, or also stereotypes of what the elite eat. So a couple of presidential campaigns went to the person who could claim to eat the most basic frontier virtuous diet. Hmm. Uh, President Harrison defeated uh, the incumbent Martin Van Buren partly by claiming that uh, Van Buren, I can't remember exactly what consomme it was, I think consomme a la reine, but he, he used a golden spoon to consume hmm. this uh, and that he liked pate de foie gras as well, whereas he, Harrison, uh, subsisted on hard cider and uh, raw beef. So this notion of virtuous eating and non-virtuous eating, you get that in the Middle Ages, you also get this in America. What did it look like in the Middle Ages? What it looked like in the Middle Ages was that the wealthy, the nobles, the king, uh, and the uh, upper class of merchants ate game, mm -hmm. meat, huge amount of meat, a lot of fish because of Lent in Catholic Europe and other fasting holidays prohibited eating meat or dairy products. But the prestige dishes had lots of spices, whereas the peasants were associated with dairy products, root vegetables, vegetables generally, mm -hmm. grain in the form of porridges rather than bread. The best bread of the aristocrats was white. The bread of the peasants was either not really bread, but a kind of uh, a, a gruel, or black bread, bread mm -hmm. made with rye or with barley. So uh, there were very clear kinds of things that you could not serve your guests any more than a person of reasonable wealth and discernment would serve frozen fish sticks or canned beef stew to guests now. Hmm. In the 1950s, you could at least serve canned peas to guests without anybody making a fuss about it. So how do standards change? Yeah. How does prestige change? Yeah. Why is farm to table now prestigious? Whereas when I lived in the South beginning in the uh, late 70s, farm to table was for poor people. Poor people grew their food uh, in their gardens or right. kept chickens in their gardens and were considered funny there was by well-off people. 
There was prestige in the amount of traveling that the food had done to get to your table. And that's true most of the time. Rich people are defined in terms of their eating by able to afford stuff that poor people can't afford, and that often means distance. So eating pineapple in 18th century Britain was uh, a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, now anybody can get bananas, so they, they can't be a prestige dish. So in, in your uh, medieval studies, how, how did you first stumble upon uh, food sneering? And, uh, like because I studied the peasants. Yeah. And I was interested in what the peasants' role in society is as imagined by the classes that do the writing, that is to say nobles and the church. And I was struck by how often the lowliness of peasants, their natural suitability for mm. exploitation and manual labor, was depicted in terms of what they ate. So, for example, there's a story that's supposed to be funny about a peasant driving a cart of manure through the spice market of the town of Montpellier in southern France, which had a famous spice market. And he's so overcome by the odor of these spices that a wealthy person would find wonderful, but that he finds bewildering that he faints. And his cart is blocking traffic. And nobody can revive him except a clever bystander who takes a pellet of dung and puts it under his nose so that the familiar odor will drive away the unpleasant odor of the spices. <laughs> so this is a notion of yeah. obviously class and taste. In reading these things, you're coming across a lot more that is, or is it only things that are written by the rich about the poor? There are things that are written in sympathy for the poor, often by churchmen. Mm -hmm. And there are things that are written in the voice of the poor. Uh, but yes, we can reconstruct from things like popular songs or the accounts of historians that, even if hostile, seem accurately to portray what the denunciations of peasants are. So you have to do it indirectly, but that's one of the things about the history of distant periods anyway. Nobody set out to instruct people 800 years later mm -hmm. as to their manner of living and their thoughts. So how did you get into spices? Was it just one of the ways you saw the most evidence of these class delineations? Yes, uh, having studied peasants and the stereotypes about what they ate and the reality of what they ate, I was interested in rich people right. and what rich people thought was prestigious. And you can't go very far with that subject in the Middle Ages without encountering the large consumption of spices and the fact that these then disappear from modern European food. So the food of the Middle Ages, although very much more meat-oriented in its flavor palette, would resemble perhaps most closely of contemporary cuisines that of North Africa or the Middle East. It's very, very heavily influenced by Southern and Eastern Mediterranean aesthetics and particularly Islamic mm. cuisine. And you, some, you at some point caught the food bug. You became some something of an expert on the spices? Yes, on the spices. I would say that on things like cookbooks, yeah. I've learned more than I've created original research. So medieval cookbooks are a tricky subject and I have uh, benefited from the work of uh, really devoted scholars. My interest quickly shifted from primary focus on the food of the Middle Ages to the food of the United States, and this was partly by looking at the New York Public Library's menu collection. Wait, what do you, what do you mean? I love menus just as documents. The New York Public Library has 40,000 of them. They had an exhibit in which they had, obviously, a small selection. But the selection was fascinating, both in terms of what the menus look like, their art, 
but most importantly, how different American food was 100, 150 years ago, how much it has changed. Why did Americans eat so much organ meat mm -hmm. in the mid-19th century, whereas now they hate it? And where to go, yeah. Yeah, where to go. Uh, you can tell that there's certain popular foods in the 19th century that they just ate them into either literal extinction, like passenger pigeons, or uh, rarity, like terrapins, turtles, mm -hmm. or various wild game animals. But some of it just has to do with taste, that Americans liked uh, uh, certain kinds of foods that are virtually forgotten, unavailable, uh, and that, on the other hand, you don't see this variety of international cuisines mm -hmm. uh, until a certain point early as compared to the rest of the world, I mean, 1880s, 1890s. But why do Americans start eating all this Chinese food? Once you caught this bug as an academic, what were your, what were your next steps? Well, my next steps were partly to uh, look and see what had been written about this yeah. and uh, without claiming more than I deserve not very much has been written about the history of American food from uh, an academic perspective. And this is partly because until recently, the history of food was regarded as a kind of hobbyist topic, like mm -hmm. the history of antique furniture. It's certainly not that it's not important, but it's not a subject of interest to professional historians. That is less true than it used to be. So there are pioneers like the historian Warren Belasco, who was writing in the 70s and 80s uh, about American food. But he was basically told by his department, you know, you can write whatever you want, but you've got to offer some respectable stuff. Huh. Well, certainly at the start of my career, I could not have, uh, I could not have gotten tenure without, if I'd written about the history of medieval food, probably. And certainly, going into another chronological and geographical area, I, you know, I can do that now, but that's still not exactly considered an academic topic. And we are going to talk about the 10 restaurants that changed America, of course. But you had mentioned to me that this book was not received in, in, the, in the academic way that you thought it would be, and it, it actually uh, entered more into the pop culture world uh, rather than amongst academics? Like, is that fair? I wanted it both ways. And, <laughs> and the bottom line is that sometimes that works. Yeah. There are, are books that uh, are intended for an academic audience. So um, uh, books that are published by an academic press, like uh, Frank, uh, the, the, the book on bullshit, or uh, uh, Piketty's book on economic inequality that then just for some reason become hmm. uh, mass market bestsellers. I had thought that I had written 10 Restaurants That Changed America as an exploration not just of restaurants but of American society yeah. because I thought that restaurants reflected in a way that historians had not previously thought about divisions such as uh, race uh, or distinctions uh, between men and women, or the spectrum of class. And I, I still think that's the case, and I think that's part of the reason why there's been some interest in it. So it's not that my colleagues have been uninterested in it, they just don't consider it to be an academic, uh, an academic book. And that's partly because it doesn't fit in to a, an existing literature and that's partly because I'm not an American historian mm -hmm. by training. And it's partly because there isn't a whole ton 
of existing scholarly literature. There's a lot of uh, a very fine work that's been done on the history of American cuisine, and it's been done to a very high standard, but it's not necessarily um, done with an eye to trying to relate it to larger social trends. I guess I'm coming at this from an angle that it doesn't seem academic to me because I enjoyed reading it a lot. Is that terrible? I mean, that sounds like such a lazy college kid thing to say. No, I think it uh, gets to what sometimes historians are accused of is that academic historians don't write for a popular audience, and therefore they cede that territory to people who are not academics, which mm. is fine, except that sometimes such people may not have uh, may have a more polemical or a less carefully researched methodology and point of view. Mm. I don't really feel that way. I wrote the book because I thought it was an interesting set of stories. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful for it being appreciated as that. And I'm grateful for the interest among a fairly large public. Mm -hmm. If that means that it's then not perceived as a uh, university press book would, that's fine. I was told by somebody who works for a university press at a meeting not long ago, well, we would have loved to have published that book. It would really, you know, done very well for us, but it would have sold only one third of the copies because we wouldn't accept that title. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, in other words, it, it could be called something like A History of Restaurants in the United States, 1830 to the present, <laughs> but that wouldn't grab people yeah. looking online or at a bookstore. No, you gotta you gotta play the game a little bit. What are what are the ten restaurants? If you want to just run us down, just real to quick. run through them really yeah. quickly. They begin chronologically with Delmonico's in New York, which is arguably the first real restaurant in the United States in the yeah. sense of destination and place uh, of elegance and a kind of experience. Antoine's mm -hmm. in New Orleans, which represents regional food, the food of the. American among American regions that's the most intact, that has survived the best into the present. Then uh, middle-class restaurants, so restaurants that are not as elegant as Delmonico's and Antoine's, beginning with Schraft's, which was a small chain of restaurants, now about to be revived, actually, huh. in uh, New England and New York, that served gracious atmosphere, fairly light food, elaborate desserts, catered deliberately to women, which was uh, one of the reasons I chose it. Not just women in the company of men, but women dining alone, which other restaurants regarded uh, with suspicion or uh, as unwelcome. So this would be women who were shopping or women in groups uh, who worked together or women alone. It was thought that what women liked was a combination of light food and elaborate dessert. So it's the first restaurant beginning at the turn of the past century. When you were researching, did you was there research done into that? Like, who are the people that were making these decisions? Well, I remember Schrafts from my childhood as yeah. a place that was so identified with female customers. And then by the 60s with elderly female customers that the restaurant went through a desperate campaign to try to convince men to come there. They had a uh, like a bar with zebra stripe uh, decor called the male animal. Oh, wow. They had ads showing uh, two young women in miniskirts with the words, 
Have you seen the little old ladies at Schrafft's lately? So uh, this didn't work. They closed not long after. But they were, you didn't have to (laughs) read about their identification with a certain kind of customer who at the time would have been described, I think, as matronly. So then we go on, is it Mandarin next? Uh, No, I think next is Howard Johnson. So here's a middle class restaurant that uh, spreads throughout the United States. In 19, the early 60s, it had a thousand branches and supposed to have served more people than any institution in the U.S. except the Army. It was, unlike Schraff's, not a downtown restaurant primarily, but a roadside restaurant. So it's, sometimes I'm asked why I didn't include McDonald's. You couldn't have McDonald's without Howard Johnson's. McDonald's is like the offspring of Howard Johnson's that kills its father. In what sense? Because I found this fascinating that Howard Johnson's came up with the idea of the commissary kitchen where they're centralizing some of their production. That's just like, this is why I loved reading this thing because like, I don't think about where that started. I don't think that, I have never thought about the first chain restaurant. You know? Yeah. So the commissary system, meaning they had warehouses or places mm-hmm. that had frozen food and they would send these out to the branches. So that's an innovation that McDonald's imitates, but McDonald's streamlines Howard Johnson's. Howard Johnson's had a menu. It had over 100 items on the menu. It had uh, uh, waitresses, female servers. Mm -hmm. Next is uh, our two, what used to be called ethnic or let's say international restaurants, one Chinese, one Italian. You can't write a history of American food without at least these two cuisines. I'd love to talk to you about Mandarin in, in, in some more detail, but uh, what what stuck out to you about Mama Leone's? Mama Leone's, that was the hardest to choose. That is, I spent the most time over what is the Italian restaurant going to be, partly because there were some other options. I chose Mama Leone's because its history can be reconstructed fairly well. As a historian, I'm aware that there's some questions that you ask of the past that there just aren't materials to uh, answer. Mm. And that it served so many customers, well over 2,000 people a day, that it is responsible for the impression that a huge number of Americans have of what an Italian meal is supposed to be. And as I think is clear from what we've already discussed, the book is not about the 10 best restaurants that ever existed in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's about the 10 most influential because I'm not interested in a ranking of quality. I'm interested in how American food evolved and what is it anyway? What is American food? So the Mandarin is a Chinese restaurant. It is uh, responsible for the greater sophistication of Chinese food beyond things like chop suey or um, neo-Cantonese. It was founded in 1961. In San Francisco, it was the first place that I ever had pot stickers or hot and sour soup or Sichuan dishes. And uh, so it was very influential in that way. And then Sylvia's in Harlem. You can't consider American food at all without looking at the African-American experience. And the African-American experience is dramatically that of the migration of uh, African Americans from the South beginning around World War I to the North and ending in the 1970s. So that a lot of what's considered to be African American food, 
which has sometimes been called soul food or down-home food, is actually southern food. The Pavillon, which was a French restaurant that dominated the high end of cuisine from its, the day of its foundation in late 1941, a seemingly inauspicious time to open a restaurant, until 1974. Mm-hmm. And it was flawlessly French, or as flawlessly as you could get in the United States. It also was rather snobbish and discriminating in a not very nice sense. I think that its owner, Henri Soulet, bears both the credit and the responsibility for the image of the French restaurant as intimidating that still uh, dominates a lot of American thought about French cuisine. The opposite of that, in some ways, was the Four Seasons, founded in 1959 as a high-end restaurant that was not going to be French. The second important thing about the Four Seasons is implicit in its name, the seasonality, which in 1959, as opposed to now, was just not an idea for what an elegant restaurant was supposed to be. And then the third thing is that the term power lunch was first applied to patrons of the Four Seasons. It's not that lunch had never been a meal of social prestige, but this combination of social and business prestige, Mm -hmm. uh, very much part of the business culture or corporate culture that we live in, was created first, or at least flowered first at Four Seasons. The last restaurant is Chez Panisse. Mm -hmm. And Chez Panisse, I would say to your listeners, probably deserves very little introduction. When I was working on this book, uh, food writers would say, oh, well, I guess Chez Panisse has got to be in there, doesn't it? So and that was the only one that people would say. Across that was the, board. the only one yeah. across the board. The way we uh, eat now, what restaurants want to accomplish by way of local, seasonal, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. flavor forward, emphasizing the primary ingredients, all this really is pioneered not only by Chez Panisse. Certainly, Alice Waters didn't invent this out of nothing, but is the most successful and famous and durable example. Who is uh, Celia Chang? So this was for the Mandarin. And uh, when I was, I knew I had to have a Chinese restaurant, and I thought of some old classic places like the Port Arthur, now closed in Chinatown in New York, very picturesque restaurant. But... Most Chinese restaurants have not left records, at least in a language that I can uh, read. And Cecilia Chang, who had created the Mandarin and also written two autobiographical works, was a logical person to choose. What I hadn't predicted was how friendly and informative she would be. When I started the research, she was 92 years old, and in fact, on the phone, she agreed to talk to me, but said, uh, come to San Francisco soon. I'm 92. And I'm glad to say that she's now 98 and uh, um, quite as strong by every external evidence as she was when we first talked. When I gave the interview over two days because I didn't want to tire her, but in fact, it was I who was tired. And so her memory of pre-revolutionary China her memory of the foods that were eaten, her literally indefatigability. This is someone who not only lived a long time, but who had to flee twice as a refugee, once from northern China to southern China with the Japanese invasion and occupation of the north, and then from Shanghai to Japan and later the United States Mm -hmm. with the triumph of the communist revolution in 1949. And 
She opened the Mandarin by accident. She thought she was really investing in a restaurant. Uh, her co-investors pulled out, leaving her uh, holding the obligation of $10,000 for a lease. And since she felt she couldn't return to Japan and her husband admitting that she'd just blown $10,000, she actually opened a restaurant, even though she was not a particularly experienced cook. She was, however, determined to create a kind of Chinese food that was authentic. So here is an example of where authenticity really means something. So that meant at the time no chop suey, but it also meant Shanghai and northern dishes that people had not seen before. And chop suey quickly was the dish that everyone associated with Chinese restaurants. Yeah, but it was a dish that had become accepted uh, as American, even though, of course, acknowledged as of Chinese origin. So there was a thing called the chop suey craze beginning in 1897. There were hundreds and hundreds of restaurants that served it. Uh, it was kind of in the position of General Tso's chicken now for a number of decades. People knew it wasn't authentic, but they still liked it. Mm. By the time she opened the Mandarin, chop suey was kind of in starting a decline. But more significantly was the number of flavors, the different kinds of cuisines, the spicy food, um, the uh, dumplings, ways of preparing fish, beggar's chicken. Even Peking duck was an exotic and uh, previously almost unknown dish. Mm. So she created a kind of high-end and regional Chinese food that is still in the process of being built, since Chinese food is still regarded as something that has a low price. Uh, but uh, certainly that, I had the most fun working on this, uh, certainly in terms of personality, creativity, and just uh, celebratory attitude towards life. I yeah. learned a lot from her. After these two days of interviews, she asked when I was coming back. I mean, we hit it off very well, it seemed to me. And I said, to, uh, you know, well, I live in uh, near New York City, and I'm not sure how often I'm going to get to San Francisco. Uh, but then it occurred to me that actually my wife, who was going to have a significant birthday, had said she wanted to go to French Laundry, so we would be in San Francisco. But then I said, in all innocence, uh, don't know exactly when we'll get a reservation, since it's a hard reservation to uh, obtain. And she said, oh, well, when's your wife's birthday? And I said, June 8th. And she said, I'll get your reservation. I go there all the time. Um, yeah, June 8th, fine. And I'll go with you. And uh, and her son, obviously, uh, Celia Chang's son, started P.F. Chang's. I, in the book, uh, there was a, the Mandarin and opened a second restaurant in Los Angeles, I believe. Yes, it, it opened two restaurants in L.A., I believe. One was the Mandarin and another called the Mandarinette, mm -hmm. which was a more casual. And, yeah, there's a Beverly right. Hills Mandarin. And her son, Philip, took over one of them. Right. And yeah. eventually grew that into P.F. Chang's. P.F. Chang's. And her name and his name is Chang, C-H-I-A-N-G. Right. But the graphic designer for the signs or the marketing people said, that I in there is just confusing to Americans. Uh, just make it C-H-A-N-G. And, I mean, they, they did it, right? And, they and I, did it. Yeah. It is representative of both the success yeah. of foreigners and immigrants and foreign restaurants and the pressure to Americanize right. or to lose your identity to an American marketing plan. It is either a heartwarming or an ironic 
story or maybe mm-hmm. maybe both. The PF stands for his partners and right. nationals. I think it, it's particularly pertinent right now because we talk about all this uh, this Andrew Zimmern stuff. He came along and basically said uh, that he was going to save America from the horseshit Chinese food. Have you have you talked to her at all about? The what Zimmern said about her son, basically her son's she was, restaurant. She was quite angry. But what's interesting is that Zimmern echoed some of her own mm-hmm. criticism, frequently voiced criticism, so there's no secret, of Chinese food in America, that it is not, uh, it's a kind of commodity. It's right. a convenience product. It's not made with any attention to the ingredients. It has declined, if anything, in recent years. From the 1970s and early 80s, there were more interesting Chinese restaurants than there are now. So it's not as if she was claiming to defend Chinese restaurants, uh, certainly defending her son's enterprise, but really the position from which Zimmern presumes to determine what is authentic and not not only to determine but to claim that his product is better seemed uh, uh, to her a lack of manners and a lack of modesty and to come at her son definitely <laughs> because you wrote at the in the end of her chapter that her friends had asked her to come along and save Chinese food yes yes and uh, she had said to me yeah they, they, they say, do what you did in the 1960s, rescue Chinese food from this homogenous, low-priced slush. She said in all ingenuousness, I'm 90 years old. If I was 80, I'd certainly do it. As if 80 was youthful vigor. Yeah. But from that perspective, of course, it is. So I wanted to talk about uh, authentic food. Is there such thing as, as authentic food, or is this just a... like? What do we do here, or is this just a goose chase? I guess you can catch the goose eventually, right? Well, or there's a kind of negative definition. There's definitely inauthentic food. Yeah. So General Tso's chicken is inauthentic. Uh, There is no such dish in China. It was invented by someone from Taiwan, and what he invented based on his childhood in Hunan is not what is served at most restaurants as General Tso's chicken. What's served as General Tso's chicken here is sweet, which Americans like, and people in China generally, at least as regards meat dishes, despise. Uh, It is um, sort of spicy. That's the Hunan legacy. Mm -hmm. But I happen to like it. Many people (laughs) like it while knowing that it's not authentic. So there's clearly something that's inauthentic. There are limits to how authentic you can get. So you can't create the, really, it's not practical to import fish from the Bay of Bengal so you're, there are certain kinds of Indian dishes you're not going to be able to prepare. Uh, there are some Mediterranean fishes. You, you can't make bouillabaisse the way it is in Marseille uh, because you know, we just don't have the, uh, the ingredients. You could sure. conceivably get them if you're a billionaire, but generally speaking, they're just not in the market. So um, nothing's going to be authentic. And then people may like the inauthentic product. People tend to like General Tso's chicken and not chicken feet, unless they're actually Chinese or from China. It just doesn't sell in a generic American audience. Organ meat is beloved of most international cuisines, and Americans, as for some reason, 
don't like it. Would you tell me the story of the uh, the IKEA ball fields? Oh, yeah. So this is the sort of way authenticity works. Often people just assume that the restaurateur is cooking out of love or memory uh, of childhood, the ethnic restaurateur, the restaurateur who comes from another country, and underestimate the degree to which the owner of the restaurant knows what American customers want and tailors the food to that desire. And this works even in small-scale operations like food trucks. The neighborhood of Red Hook was uh, isolated, uh, very far from the subway, and poor, a large number of housing projects. And when IKEA built its first store in New York, it also had a free ferry from Manhattan to the store in Red Hook. This brought a huge number of uh, white people, uh, not necessarily all that affluent, but certainly uh, better off than the in, people in the neighborhood. And they discovered that on the soccer fields in the decrepit parks, then decrepit parks of uh, Red Hook, uh, soccer players' girlfriends prepared food and sold it or gave it away, depending on what kind of occasion it was. And they prepared Central American and Mexican dishes, and these became all the rage with a chow hound or uh, later Yelp mm-hmm. constituency because they were so authentic. This was food that was being made not for uh, tourists or not for um, uh, Manhattanites, but the real expression of immigrant soul. But in fact, the food was already being tailored for this audience (laughs) uh, because this audience was willing to pay more and there were more IKEA visitors than soccer players. So one uh, woman is quoted in the article Naked City as saying, well, I'm actually from Guatemala, but people like uh, pupusas, so I I make pupusas. (laughs) And another said, well, actually in Salvador, we would just serve these uh, without vegetables. But Blanquitos, white people, uh, Blanquitos like vegetables, so uh, put vegetables on it. They're playing with authenticity. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that, um, and there's nothing even wrong with boasting about what great pupusas you had. But if you're making the claim, as many of the chowhound bloggers Mm -hmm. did, that, oh, you know, mine are more somehow earthy or authentic or ethnic than yours, yeah. on the level of facts, it's not validated. <laughs> I should say that in the paperback, you write a, a new list is of restaurants that are changing America today. What did you feel like you had to write uh, since this book was released in 2016 to now? Like what, what things came up that you just felt were, were crucial to add to this? I think certain kinds of aspects of health food or vegetarian food. And I chose restaurants that either were deliberately vegetable forward, like Dirt Candy in New York, Mm -hmm. or primarily emphasizing vegetables, like Blue Hill Stone Barns, or rediscovering and incorporating vegetables in a certainly uh, respectable role for meat environment, like Husk in Charleston, South Carolina. I thought that some of the changes towards high-quality fast food had to be looked at by an example, in this case, Shake Shack. I was fascinated by 
cult restaurants. There have always been restaurants that were very popular. People were lined up outside Antoine's in the 1940s and 50s. And it's a huge restaurant, so to line up outside means they've just got hundreds and hundreds of patrons. But I define a cult restaurant as a place where you not only Instagram the dishes you're eating, but Instagram your waiting in line, that the waiting in line is part of the experience. So I chose Franklin Barbecue in Austin, but there are many other places right. that could serve for that. So these are some of the some of the considerations. How did you uh, did you are you on Instagram? How did you educate yourself in the Instagram phenomenon? I was more on Instagram uh, uh, at one time. Now I, I'm I'm more on Twitter. I just kind of like the I think of myself as not so wed to images, although I end up almost always having pictures. <laughs> uh, so it's really, uh, uh, um, uh, but Instagram is, I acknowledge, the the, the biggest amateur food Our, site, is it not? Yeah, you would know oh, for sure it is, yeah. Um, if not the, it, it seems like it's completely it's revolutionized. All right, right. That's what it's about. Do you think Instagram created the phenomenon of people Instagramming themselves in line, or was this something you were starting to see before Instagram uh, really exploded in prominence? You could have it with uh, any social media. Yeah. So Danny Meyer said that Shake Shack was franchised and started to spread with in 2007, the same year that the uh, smartphone was introduced, and that... The smartphone has transformed waiting in line. Right. Waiting in line was, and in certain respects still is, like the Department of Motor Vehicles. There are certainly experiences of waiting in line that have not greatly improved. <laughs> but you can certainly entertain yourself. Before, in order to pass the time at the doctor's office or waiting at uh, the Shake Shack in Madison Square, you would have to be a reader or something like that. Oh, and while well, that's fine with me, but, but not really popular with the majority of the majority of people aren't going to bring like uh, um, all the king's men to <laughs> the, right. the burger line but everybody can entertain themselves with a phone and so the uh, ability not only to divert yourself but to talk to your friends and to show your friends what you're doing right. and to trade information and to have inspiring of pointless messages like only 15 minutes to go <laughs> has indeed changed the experience. Yeah, that's funny. I believe it was in in the in the new part, the new edition. You threw a little bit of a shot at the world's 50 best, which is my favorite thing to throw shots at. Uh, what what is your opinion of of the world's 50 best restaurants, the list of It's a little bit like the US News and World Report rankings of college, right. uh, colleges and universities. You have to play the game. You can't just say you're opting out, but you are giving to a group of arbitrary people uh, a control over your life. The only thing that is advantageous for the university and college rankings is that they're fairly conservative. You know, Yale University can't go from three to 30 in one year or just disappear from the list because uh, uh, it closed part of the year or something like that. So those rankings have some shifts. They have to have shifts in order to make it interesting. Mm -hmm. If it's the same every year, who's going who's gonna to log on or buy uh, this? The 50 best has all sorts of shifts and therefore encourages a kind of competitiveness 
that is not necessarily pursued in the interests of quality. And they also have a certain kind of restaurant. It's got to be very innovative food. It has to be performative and artistic. It uh, can only make gestures and feeble ones at that to tradition. Uh, I believe that tradition is important in restaurant dining. So it's not that it's inaccurate. It's just that it represents a certain kind of selection that now has gotten out of hand because it's made a claim uh, that is not backed up by reality. Who are they to say? What are the what does the fifty best mean anyway? How can it change so radically from year to year? Uh, and 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 why do they have so much power? There's so much that we criticize about them, including the fact that most of them are voting for the restaurants where they are taking free meals and very exclusive treatment. Yeah, it's very corrupt. You have it written in the in the paperback edition of the book, of the book at the very least. It could be as well in the hardcover, although I must suggest the softcover because, you know, Mamafuku, you got all the restaurants in there. Uh, avocado toast is so 2017 is a is a quote that you found particularly notable. And I read that and I'm like, well, well, that makes a lot of sense to me. Avocado toast is so 2017. What's so funny. Right. 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 So can you just give can you give me a sense of how ridiculous it is to hear something like that? Like is, you know. Are we just flying right now? What's going on? I think that food has assimilated the language and attitudes of the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. Nobody would say that, oh, why don't you just not make any changes this year in fashions? Because (laughs) by definition, it has to change. You can resist the change. And of course, for a while, men's clothing was much slower to change than women's clothing. But Uh, It's like you don't have the same plays on Broadway or the same repertoire at the opera year after year. There's Mm got to be some novelties. But uh, with food, it's different because there are some people and the clubs are at one extreme who like having uh, the same dishes available and don't like seeing them disappear. The statement, that's so 2017, is more appropriate, one would normally think, to the fashion industry or the music industry or things that are, are built on change by the kind of thing that New York Magazine does of uh, things that are in and things that are out. Mm-hmm. By definition, the things that are out are only just recently out. So there's no point to saying Terrapin is out. Yeah. Terrapin has been out since 1920 or so. Right. Uh, avocado toast, however. And, and of course, the thing is to catch something when the amateurs still think it's in, when the foodies or the tourists or whatever group you despise. Uh, um, the plebeians. Well, they're not plebeians because they have money, but they're they're not the cutting edge. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't know. So uh, you are, you've, have you signed the lease on a new book? You are, uh, what, tell, tell us about the new project. So I have a book that's coming out Sorry, in my, October. My, my analogies just oh, no, I fall, like, I like fall the lease. apart. I like the, the lease. Uh, as this. I have a book coming out called American cuisine and how it got this way. Okay. So it's, first of all, is there such a thing as American cuisine? What is it? Mm-hmm. Why did Americans embrace industrial food so soon? Why do Americans like foreign cuisines so much, so much earlier than the rest of the world? And so it's partly like 10 restaurants focused on what is American cuisine, but it goes beyond restaurants to look at actually regions and 
traditions yeah. and cookbooks. You didn't do 10 moments that defined American cuisine? You didn't... I didn't feel like I owned the, the decile yeah. uh, idea. I had considered doing 10 restaurants that changed the world and might still do that. Whoa. But that's tough. There's some obvious ones, but then, you know, there's got to be a restaurant in like Song Dynasty, China. Yeah. But I'm not sure I've got the equipment to research that. <laughs> Well, we can look out for it. When uh, when is that going to be coming out? You have the the American Cuisine book is coming out in October. Oh, great. Well, Paul Freeman, thank you so much for well joining me. Thank you so much for allowing me to join you in your office. Uh, the last time I was in a professor's office, I'm sure I was making up some 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 kind of excuse about a paper or you know wiggling my way out. Believe of something. me, I've heard of this, and uh, this is a pleasure in itself, and certainly comparatively. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the show. We really hoped you enjoyed this conversation with Paul Friedman. Please check out his book, 10 Restaurants That Changed America. And remember to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are using. Shoot us a rating as long as it's a good one. And stay tuned for next week when we have something else. Goodbye.